1: You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan. And,
0: Wade, I know that we had some technical difficulties earlier with the Skype call that we're recording this on. Uh, But I want to let you know that if I cut out again, it's not because of the internet. It's because a frog just barreled in through my window from the sky.
1: Oh, wow. Well, you know, it's, it's weird here, Kevin. All of my water just turned to blood. That sounds absolutely terrifying, and I would advise you to maybe get out of there as soon as you can. (laughs) Listeners, we talk about frogs, plagues, and Paul Thomas Anderson in this week's episode, where we review his 1999 film, Magnolia. That's right, this is one of the picks from one
0: of our $10 a month patrons. He really wanted us to review Paul Thomas Anderson's 1999 classic. So that's what we're doing on episode 306 of Seeing and Believing. Now, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna read a line to you from an opera.
1: I want you to give me that line back in the language in which the opera was originally written. And for a bonus 250, uh, you can sing it. I'm Stanley Specter.
0: There is the story of a boy genius. Thomas Kidd, Jean Baptiste year. And the game show host. And Jimmy
1: Gator. Live from Burbank, California. First question for 25. This French playwright and actor joined the Béjar troupe of actors.
0: And the ex boy genius. I'm Chris Kidani Smith. I used to be smart, now I'm just stupid. There is the story of the dying man. I'm
1: Earl Partridge. I have a son, you know. You do? Uh, find him. I'm Frank TJ Mackey. His lost son.
0: What did he say? Because I am not going to take care of him. What does he want? And the dying man's wife. I'm Linda Partridge. I took care of him through this, Alan. What now, then? Me and him. Do you understand? There's right. no one else. No one else!
1: The caretaker. Hello! I'm Phil Parma. See, this is uh, the scene of the movie where you help me out. And there is
0: the story of a mother.
1: I'm Rose Gator. You come home soon after the show. I love you. love you,
0: too. And the daughter.
1: I'm Claudia Wilson Gator
0: now that i've met you would you object to never seeing me again and the police officer in love i'm
1: officer jim curring my life is very stressful and i'd hope to have a relationship that is very calm and undemanding and loving so if you are this person please leave me a message at box number 82 and this will all make sense in the end listeners we are here with episode 306 and kevin i'm excited about this episode because we are reviewing the 1999 film Magnolia from Paul Thomas Anderson. It's a movie that, surprisingly, we haven't really discussed on the podcast in all the previous 305 episodes. We, we might have mentioned it a few times, but I'm, I'm looking forward to this. And we did mention last week, I am... Stepping down from the podcast here soon. This is my second to last episode. So next week, oh, man, it'll be the last episode. But I'm excited because we get to do something fun today, a little bit different. And then we get to do, we're going to do something fun next week. But I was, I was thinking about this, Kevin. And it made me a little sad because last week was the last new film that I will review or I did review, on Seeing and Believing, at least as a co-host, we talked about the eyes of Tammy Faye. Now we're doing Magnolia, and then next week we're doing something special, but no no new films. And there's some great movies coming out. I'm I'm jealous. Whoever gets <laughs> to talk to you about Dune, whoever gets to talk to you about West Side Story, I saw the trailer for the first time, and I'm Mm-mm-mm. so excited about that.
0: Yeah, well, you know, Wade, I I know that you are you know stepping down as the regular co-host, but I hope you don't think that I'm going to let you get away without occasionally shanghaiing you back into the yes. co-hosting chair for you know, a guest spot, a guest episode here and there. So don't think you're off the hook because you're
1: totally not. Oh, man. No, no, no. I love that. I, I think that'd be great. I will say the one thing keeping me from, an em- from being an emotional wreck today, Kevin, is I realized <laughs> that I'm not going to have to review Dear Evan Hansen. This is... <laughs> This is the this is the good news in a in a sad series of episodes. <laughs>
0: yeah, you know, there's there's a part of me that it's almost the opposite for because I kind of would like to hear you splutter your way through a review about you know why he's thirty years old and he's playing high school. Art. I I just those thoughts are just they're going to be lost like tears and rain. <laughs> And, I don't know, I, I'm still in the mourning process for it, so I appreciate your sensitivity during this difficult time.
1: Yeah, I mean, normally I would love to go see a nice, happy 10.30 p.m. showing during the weekday <laughs> of Dear Evan Hansen. But yeah. not, not. it's not going to happen. I don't know if I'll ever see the movie. Maybe I will. I don't know. But uh, I'm not going to be rushing to see it in theaters. But, no, we, we've got a great show planned for you today and Kevin we've got to talk about why we're reviewing Magnolia. We have a Patreon uh, for our podcast and one of our donors our Patreon members is James Hutton and he is at the $10 a month level meaning once a year he gets to choose a film for us to review and he chose a very ambitious movie. <laughs> he chose Magnolia, which, like I said before, I'm 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 actually very excited to talk about this movie.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, if you're going to to pledge at ten dollars a month mm. uh, to to our Patreon, you know, go big or go home, right? Like mm-hmm. something really ambitious is uh, very fitting for. That kind of uh, that kind of power, I guess, that uh, James Hutton wields over this this podcast. So mm-hmm. I hope that we we do him proud, and I think it'll be a good discussion.
1: Yes. So let's go ahead and jump right into that. I'll give you the quick official synopsis for Magnolia for those of you who have not seen this film. I will say because it was released in 1999 over 20 years ago so about to be 22 years oh man Um, we i know right we (laughs) are going to talk about the plot of the film and we already talked about frogs if you haven't seen the movie you're like what does that mean we are going to give away some spoilers so if you have not watched the movie and you you do want to you want to see it first go ahead and pause the podcast though i would i would think that this is one of those movies you could listen to some spoilers about it and it doesn't really lose any energy, but I do wanna put that up there before we begin. So here is the official synopsis. On a random day in the San Fernando Valley, a dying father, a young wife, a male caretaker, a famous lost son, a police officer in love, a boy genius, an ex-boy genius, a game show host, and an estranged daughter will each become part of a dazzling multiplicity of plots with one story. That's a lot of protagonists, Kevin. I think there's a total of nine protagonists in this picture. It's definitely an ambitious movie by Paul Thomas Anderson. This is the second time for me to watch this film. And interestingly enough, Kevin, I remembered most of, of what I had seen from the first viewing because I, I saw it probably about seven, eight years ago. And so it was really fascinating to be able to watch it again. I like this movie. I think I've said in the past, this, is, this might be my favorite film of 1999, but I wanted to get your sort of snapshot review. How many times have you seen Magnolia? And And what do you think of this this puzzling film? So
0: I'm like you in that. I this was my second viewing of the movie. I watched it for the first time, probably, I don't know, maybe a few years after it was it was released. And at that time, I was still pretty new to mm. anything that wasn't like mainstream, you know popular <laughs> yeah. cinema. So suffice to say that I you know, I didn't really appreciate it at the time. It kind of went over my head. And so I was really looking forward to seeing it again with fresh eyes and you know, I guess I I often like revisiting the critical darlings that I disliked the first time because it gives me the chance to sort of, See you know what was I ask myself what was I missing and to kind of try to sift through it again and see it afresh. Um, So so that's kind of my history with the movie. I don't know that I would would be as as positive about it as you. There's if I had a to a word I guess to sum up my overall reaction to the movie, it's that I think it's a little bit uneven. Um, Where there's there's movies there's times when you're watching this movie where it is the greatest movie you've ever seen. There's some really incredible sequences. And then there are other parts of this movie that it feels a little bit less, um, vital, at least for me. And I'm looking forward to kind of talking about that because Hmm. I think in a way with a, with a movie that's this sprawling and ambitious, that's almost an inevitability in some sense that, that there's just going to be, it's reach is going to exceed its grasp at some points and other points it's going to, swing for the fences and really, you know, make a big hit. And I I think that that's something we're going to sift through with this movie. I will say that I appreciated it more on the second go around mainly because I appreciated the I don't want to say spiritual vision of it necessarily, but the the way that Paul Thomas Anderson really finds finds a way to suggest uh a cosmic through line for all of these various stories that he presents in a way that doesn't feel so much like mere coincidence. And I guess because the movie begins with this this narration about how there can't there are some coincidences so incredible that they can't be mere coincidence, that uh, feels part and parcel of what he's doing here. And I think that overall he's very successful at it.
1: Yeah, this is not like like that movie crash. Where mm-hmm. all these distinct characters and they somehow come together at the end. Uh, this this feels bigger and more epic than that. There are a couple characters in this film that I that I don't necessarily take to all that much, and it surprised me because the, the first time I watched this, this is over three hours long. First time I watched this, it just felt it was it was a lot, and then I go back and I watch it again, knowing. What happens, what I was surprised to find about this viewing is how little time we spend with each character. And it, it shouldn't be surprising because even though the movie is three hours long, there's so many protagonists that we don't spend all that much with each of them. And yet, I felt like I really understood the plight of these characters. I feel for each of these characters. And the, the angst, the hopelessness is, is tangible. This is one of those movies, uh, it's filled with a lot of unhappy people. Uh, the people in this film, they're either dying of cancer, or watching a loved one die of cancer, cheating on a spouse, or being cheated on. That's what it feels like anyway. It's just, it's a tough movie to to sit through. And then we get to the end. And there, there's just this, this powerful force that brings about a type of forgiveness and a type of grace. And it does this in a way that is both Contrived and not contrived. So you mentioned Kevin that opening sequence where they talk about these random chances, and if these chances, the narrator says at one point, if these occurrences happened in the plot of the of a, of a movie, we would say it's oh, it's unbelievable. Like it's it's fake. It's contrived, and then the movie simultaneously gives us a number of contrived scenes there's one sequence where all the characters in the, the main characters in the film sing along together and then there of course there is the frog there are the frogs that come down from the sky and i just i was struck by this sense of reality and the hand of the filmmaker being present together. And I think that's a metaphor for spiritual matters too in this film. But it's, it's fascinating to just kind of see that play out because the movie ends in a way you don't expect a film like this to end. It's not bleak. It is happy, but not completely happy. Uh, and yet, at the same time, it very much feels like a movie. It's not a true story. So, yeah, I don't know. There's just kind of just a lot happening here. It's it's tough to really peel back the layers of this flower, this magnolia flower.
0: <laughs> um, the I mean, you're right that there's definitely. I think Anderson wants us to to think about. Um, I guess his role as the creator of these stories partly because the, uh, the biblical reign of frogs at the end. And it is biblical over the course of the film. The, the, the verse, uh, Exodus eight, two pops up from time mm-hmm. to time in the frame. Like there's an advertisement that has it. Uh, somebody in the studio audience of this game show is holding a sign that says Exodus eight two. And that's, of course, the the verse that talks about uh, the plague of frogs on on Egypt that that Moses uh, calls down uh, on Pharaoh. And Anderson is very much wanting us to have that kind of,, uh, be in that kind of cosmic mindset and maybe link that with his role as the, sort of the puppet master who's pulling the strings of these, very various complex plot lines and sort of tying them together. So there's, there's even a, a scene where, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's, uh, nurse, uh, Phil is, he's on the phone with, uh, 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 an operator at an organization that maybe can lead him to the long lost son of the man that Phil is caring for. And in this scene, he makes this impassioned plea that this is like one of those scenes in a movie where somebody is <laughs> you know, trying to desperately to find, to reunite a, a son with his father before the, the father passes away. And I believe that those scenes are in movies because things like that do happen. Things like that are true. And I'm begging you to do what the character in this movie does and and help me out here. And that's just it. It's such a a naked appeal to the audience that that says, you know, this might seem as you as you said, Wade, contrived, but it's really begging the audience to to try to move past the the sense of the narrative strings being pulled, and really access the the beating heart that's that's kind of underlying that narrative, and really think about well, what kind of What kind of emotions is this movie asking me to feel? Can I open myself up to them? Mm -hmm. And I think that more often than not, this movie does succeed at really bringing the audience along in that ride. This isn't like you, you mentioned crash earlier. This isn't one of those movies where, you know, there's lots of interlocking plot lines and you're kind of sitting there the entire time thinking about how it's really trying to manipulate you into, into some sort of it's almost trying to brute force you, I guess, into the sense that oh, we're all connected somehow. Whereas Magnolia does that, but because Anderson is so skilled at using metafiction and these these other elements, like the uh, the part where all of the characters are singing along to the Amy Mann song on the soundtrack, those those work in a way that kind of bypasses your defenses, and I think that that's partly why Magnolia has, has the reputation that it has, whereas movies like Crash or Amores Perros kind of have seen their reputations kind of dim a little bit over
1: time. Mm. Well, and, and weather also plays a key role here with kind of understanding the movie, it being pretty fair weather at the beginning of the picture, and then when the conflict ramps up it begins to just absolutely pour and these are all just natural occurrences in the weather and then a supernatural occurrence uh, appears and it does feel very biblical if if you think about the plagues in Ex- or this plague in exodus 8 it is a sign of God's control and His sovereignty. Uh, you think about the Pharaoh, about uh, Pharaoh, and about his his might, and the pl- the plagues are essentially God saying, "Hey, I like I'm really in control, and you're not." And that is definitely an idea present in this movie. These characters are are outside of their control. They do have some sort of agency, but not complete agency. And it brings up another theme in the movie, and that's of uh, the, the attachment to previous generations. You have characters who are hurt as adults because of what happened to them as children. You see sins passed from fathers to sons. And it it's really just kind of uh, expressed in the, I don't know if it's the most famous line in the movie, but it's the one that I'm most familiar with, is we may be done with the past or finished with the past, but the, the past isn't finished with us. And William H. Macy's character, at one point, quotes from, another passage in exodus where he talks about the sins being passed down from the fathers to to the children so you have you have all these characters that are sort of fighting against these forces that they can't control and they're attempting to make amends for that to receive forgiveness and it really only happens when the frogs come and it's just so it's just so fascinating how that one storm changes the entire film you're really at the all is lost moment and that quote-unquote supernatural event is what turns everything around it's it's a bold choice by anderson and i can definitely see why some people are pretty unhappy with it or were or are it's the 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 deus ex machina on on purpose uh to make a point here
0: yeah i mean i i think i'd probably count myself among the crowd that just isn't fully satisfied by the the apocalyptic reign of frogs here at the end and i use apocalypse kind of in the biblical sense right the unveiling of something Mm -hmm. because that's that's kind of what anderson is going for here is that he's he's a lot of the characters uh, reach resolution or find uh, redemption or at least come to terms with something uh, that has happened to them uh, by the time the, the frogs arrive. I think for me, what is unsatisfying to me is it doesn't really feel like the, the, the frogs don't really feel like they're freighted with any meaning. They're kind of just an event that happens simultaneously. With a lot of these reconciliations and revelations instead of an event that is somehow linked to them. And then maybe that's why it feels less satisfying to me. It's more, it feels a little bit like Paul Thomas Anderson needed a, a big bang at the end to kind of catalyze the intersection of all these plot lines, but there's not really. I don't know, for me it doesn't work very effectively as simple because the frogs themselves don't really mean anything. They're just kind of something vaguely biblical that are thrown onto the screen. At least that's how I see it. Hmm. I think the film is strongest when it uh permits uh Anderson to draw these connections uh simply through through editing. Um there's there's a lot of scenes where we see you know, one character, um, in, in the process of doing something. And as they do that action, there's a cut and we're suddenly with another plot line and the implied link there, um, does a lot to deepen and enrich both those stories more so than any sort of, um, heavy handed narrative mood where two characters encounter each other because the frogs suddenly start raining from the sky. If that makes sense.
1: Hmm. No, yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. It it is fascinating to be on the other side of that and just how contentious that section of the movie is. And it's just fascinating to me, these very explicit references in the movie, just that Claudia's father's name is Jimmy, and then she meets a Jim, and she projects a lot of her feelings for her father on Jim eventually, uh, which almost breaks them apart. And that's that's very heavy-handed. At the beginning of the movie, we have this very heavy-handed, hey, you're going to see something that doesn't make sense later on, but those things happen in, in real life. Uh, you mentioned cuts here, Kevin. Watching this film, uh, and since I've seen this, for the first time i've had a chance to really kind of work through a lot of scorsese's filmography and i'm reminded a lot of some of his some of his shot choices and it feels like anderson is definitely kind of pulling from that vein i i get some goodfellas vibe here the not the, the choice of music while it is very different then scorsese scorsese does lean on on songs in his movies uh the quick camera work in anderson's film here uh, is is just reminiscent of something we'd see in, in a scorsese picture D- do you see any connections there for that how did you feel like how did you how did you feel about the form of this film
0: i mean the the scorsese influences are are definitely uh Anderson doesn't try to hide it at all. I mean, there's this, you know, these long tracking shots through the bowels of the uh, TV network station where the game show is is played and, you know, we fo- you know, we kind of follow one set of characters and then we kind of branch off and follow another character for a little while and then they, you know, the, the camera veers off, of course, and we're with the first character again and that's kind of a, a way that um, Scorsese used in Goodfellas to sort of suggest the... The way that everything comes together for Henry Hill when he's in the mob, right? Like he moves through this world as fluidly as the camera is moving the audience through the world, and we're kind of permitted access to the world in a similar way. Uh, with this film, though, uh, Anderson is—he's he, suggesting that to extent, and but he also uses that to suggest again the kind of the the unified reality in which all these characters live, and the way that motifs. Um, have a tendency to to replay in uh, lives that are geographically separated or lives that are kind of like you know all kind of bumping into each other in this TV network station. Um, the I think the one of the film's highlights is that sequence that you mentioned earlier where uh, there's the Amy Mann soundtrack. I think it's called Wise Up. Uh, it's playing on the soundtrack, and the you know you're kind of prepared for something like Scorsese where it's playing over a montage and you kind of strap yourself in for that kind of a sequence. And then when, uh, the characters begin to sing along with it and we move from person to person, uh, that I think is a, a really, it, it's, it's a, it's a really strong sequence. And it's that, I think that really, um, brings the, 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 this the spiritually tinged uh cosmic unity of this movie to the fore in a very strong way much stronger i guess in my opinion than than the frogs but also you know scorsese himself being a, a really spiritual producer having that link in the film's visual influences i guess really makes at least for me watching this that brought that fully to my mind and and helped me really engage with it on the level that I think Anderson intends.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's it just, I think the first time I saw it, I, I wasn't working in that vein, but it is it is very apparent. Uh, the performances, I, I didn't actually read off many of the cast members. I probably should have done that at the beginning of this segment. Tom Cruise, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Julianne Moore, Jason Robards, Philip Baker Hall, William H. Macy, among many others. John C. Reilly, who is maybe the heart of the film or the moral conscious of, of the mm. movie. The, the, the cast is just phenomenal. And Tom Cruise, of course, won, I believe he won Best Supporting Actor here. His seen, he's, he's very crude, and uh, it does make me uncomfortable in some scenes, but he is really he's really good here. Another person who might also be the heart of the movie is Philip Seymour Hoffman. So you've got John C. Riley, who is conducting these cops-style monologues. with. There's no camera there. He's speaking to himself. And he says a line at the end of the movie that I think is really what the film is trying to say in a nutshell. And, and he says this, sometimes people need a little help. Sometimes people need to be forgiven. And I think that's a big point in the picture. And then, of course, Philip Seymour Hoffman, he he won't let go to the hope that reconciliation can occur. And so he's doing his best to unite Earl's character uh, with the character played by Tom Cruise, Mackie. He's trying to bring them together. So both of those characters, Philip Seymour Hoffman... John C. Riley, they seem to have this moral centering um, that guides the film, guides the film along. Yeah, that closing
0: uh, speech by uh, Riley's character really puts you in mind of of the Apostle Paul in some ways. He's talking about mm. you know, I, you know, I'm an officer of the law and I follow the law, but also sometimes people need a little forgiveness and i mean that that is that's straight out of paul the tension between law and grace and you know how is it possible to uh break break out of the shackles of you know constantly following the law and being condemned if you don't and the answer that riley's character gives us is well you 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 offer forgiveness you offer help Mm. you offer grace and that's i i think for me why you know, even though Philip Seymour Hoffman is definitely like you—you you look at him; he's like just you know, lawful, good, pure-hearted. He's a, a great character, and um, but I think for me, Riley really feels to me like the the part of the film, the or the character in the film, I guess that that I just really feel connected to, uh, and it's maybe telling that the last image of the movie we see—it's him sitting at the bedside of of Claudia. Who you know walked out on him on on their date and obviously has a lot of problems, but um, he's sitting on the edge of her bed and he's speaking to her. We can't really qu- fully hear exactly what he's saying. It's kind of mixed on the sound. Uh, the The sound mix is kind of making sure it's muffled, so we're only catching snatches. But it's obvious that he's very gently explained to her that you know she's a good person that he. He desires to be with her, and the last image is of her looking directly into the camera and kind of cracking this this broken but hopeful smile. And I think it's just a a, a real humdinger of a of a closing image. It's really great, mm-hmm. and does uh, a so much. I think it's touches like that that tie the movie all together for me. And the the more. Heavy-handed scenes like the 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 Reign of Frogs, or even the scenes where there's a lot of acting going on, but there's not really necessarily a lot of interesting acting going on. Um, <laughs> okay. I, I think there there are a few scenes in this movie where I feel like Anderson really directed his actors to go for broke and go large. And I think those moments are. Less powerful for me than the ones like the the gaze I just described. That's the film's final image, or Tom Cruise's Frank T.J. Mackey just you know looking into the camera and quietly whispering, "I'm quietly judging you." <laughs> those moments, I think, are the ones that that really punch me in the gut, and I, I think the movie is is better in those moments than it is in in the more the showy Oscar moments. I guess.
1: <laughs> now, how did you feel? about the scene where we hear the spake Zorathustra as Tom <laughs> Cruise begins his his very aggressive masculine conference.
0: Oh man, I th- I actually I really like that scene. It's and great. I think that's Anderson being witty. You yeah. know, he's he's obviously like this is how Mackie kind of sees himself, or at least this is the way he wants his audience to see him. Mm. And even the way he gives his his talk, I, I'm glad that you brought that up because I want to really highlight how Cruz's performance of Mackie giving this, this speech at this conference is very much modeled on the, the vocal cadences of street preachers or tent revival preachers like i want you uh, to you know like to embrace your mass. you know he doesn't use a word as big as masculinity but you know it's it's that kind of like you know i want you to to feel something he's really milking it for all it's worth and i think i don't know I, i i really like that and i think it's another sneaky way for anderson to suggest the ways that people Look for deeper meaning in things that simply don't satisfy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, yes. And it definitely seems to be sex here throughout the lives of many characters. This search for that, this search for success as well. Uh, you have a character, uh, Jimmy's character who is dying of cancer. he can barely make it through a show and yet he just won't he won't stop what what drives that and uh, I I do want to go back and point out we're talking about John C Riley's character I think it's important to note that if he is the moral center of the picture and at least you and I agree that he is at least the center or or one of the two people uh he does pray before he heads out to work he talks about Jesus sending calls to him and I think there's I think there's something there I think, I think the religious elements are not just for show. I, I think there's kind of something there, at, at least a point to the transcendent. Uh, I do want to read a quote. Uh, David Rourke, who's been on the show once or twice in the past, he wrote an article about this film for Relevant Magazine, and it's still out there. We, uh, we'll we we'll put it in the show notes. It's not a long article, but it's it's an article I read I believe it was right after I saw the movie. And I love his interpretation of it. And he, he says this. I'll re, it's kind of a longer quote, but I'll, but I'll say this. He says uh, about the film, it's kind of a, a, an encapsulation of it. Formerly enslaved to the past, to pain, the protagonists are delivered by an unexplainable force that gives them the power to face and overcome their problems and to love one another in a way that surpasses any shortcomings an individual may have. This redemption doesn't arrive by any particular character's own merit. The characters have already proven they are incapable of escaping their personal hells through their own strength. The healing and forgiveness they obtain is instead implemented by the hand of something greater, something without human fault, something perfect, something divine, and I believe that something is God. Playing an active role in Anderson's story, he is the driving force that intervenes when nothing else will go right, when all hope is lost. I think it's a really good interpretation. I don't know if I'm as confident to say, hey, like, it, it is necessarily God. Anderson means that. But when I watch it, I do kind of walk away saying, yeah, there, there, is, there are forces at work. That's That's something at least acknowledged by Anderson here. And we need that. We need some sort of higher force. Now, as a Christian, of course, uh, I would interpret that a certain way. But I do think those themes are present in in the movie.
0: I do think David's reading... I mean, I think that's a, that's a fair reading of the film. And Anderson certainly makes that obvious through his use of clear biblical allusions. So, you know, there, there's definitely something there. And regardless of... His personal beliefs, he's. I think Anderson is very intentionally saying we do need something besides ourselves. Hmm. Uh, we we and we need more than other people as well. Like there are there are people who can support us, um, but they are just as likely to abandon us or to uh, to hurt us in ways, and so we can't fully rely just simply on humanity to save us as well there has to be something else there's you know one of the refrains that we hear throughout the film is william h macy's uh former boy genius saying you know my name is donnie smith and i have lots of love to give Mm. and one of the final scenes in the film is one that he shares with riley's police officer where he says i i have so much so all this love and i just i don't know where to put it i don't know what's a deserving, who or what is a deserving recipient of that. This is essentially what he's saying in that moment. And I mean, obviously for a Christian viewer, it's obvious where that love should go. And even, and even a non-Christian viewer, if they're paying attention to this film, they have to go, they have to be thinking, well, if people can't, if we can't just put all of our faith and love in people, what else is there? And uh, Paul Thomas Anderson might be saying, well, where did the f- frogs fall from?
1: And mm-hmm. uh, invite us to look up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I love what, you, what you've said. And, and maybe we have talked about this movie in the past, but the idea of this is an apocalyptic event. And apocalypse, the unveiling, the uncovering. And we get a lot of people bringing the truth to light here. And that seems like it's going to cause a lot of harm but for those looking for that unveiling that uncovering that apocalypse it reveals what is evil and it and it it destroys that so that good can foster and so the quote unquote apocalypse is in at least according to scripture for the just that is something that we we look forward to we look forward to evil being defeated and uh, we get some of those, those themes here. Listeners, that is our review of Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia. It's currently streaming on Netflix. So if you have a Netflix subscription, you can watch that. If you don't, then it's everywhere. You can, you can rent it and, and check it out, and we'd love to get your thoughts on that. Kevin, this is the end of our show. It's the part of the show where we recommend something from the world of television and or film to our listeners. What would you like to recommend to us today? Well, this is
0: a a movie that I have recommended uh, on a previous episode, but it just seemed too appropriate uh, given this, the the movie we talked about today to not uh, recommend it again Um, And it's another Paul Thomas Anderson film. It's another Paul Thomas Anderson film that really feels indebted to Scorsese. And for my money, it's, I'm not sure if it's his best film, but it's probably one of his best films, one of his two best films, I say. And I think that would be uh, Boogie Nights. This is his uh, look at the world of pornography. And so for that reason, there's obviously some subject matter that uh, you know, listeners would want to exercise discernment about before, you know, going into this movie blind. But I think that if you uh, can engage with the cunt of this movie wisely, it just has such I think it's just such an incredible look at American culture about the way that uh, self-mythologizing of the sort that uh, we see these characters engage in and that in a way pornography itself invites to to kind of like Uh, indulge fantasies about uh, oneself or about others, uh, about how that's really a thin veneer and underneath is ugliness and sadness and deep deep need and maybe even a spiritual void. I think all of that is present in Boogie Nights. I think it's got the same it's just got this wonderful energy about the filmmaking that ensures that maybe whereas Magnolia is a little bit more you know, morose and a little bit more. You know, you really—it's—it's it's a much sadder movie in a lot of ways. But Boogie Nights, I think, hits at a lot of the same themes, but does so with with a verve that is just, in some places, just very exhilarating. So, I think it's—it's it's very much worth the time uh, needed to to engage with it. So, that's my recommendation for this week.
1: I have not, I have not seen the film just because it is a tough subject matter, right? But it's—it's it's one that I've heard. Very much about, and I, I I heard you talk about it a couple times, so I, I think mm-hmm. maybe here in the near future, I think Paul Thomas Anderson, it looks like he might release a film this year by the end of the by the end of the year, so might need to go back and watch Boogie Nights and maybe Hard Eight. I haven't seen Hard Eight. Have you Have you watched mm-hmm. Hard Eight? Yeah, I've I've seen Hard Eight. I think
0: it. I mean, given the fact that it's you know he was an unknown at the time heart eight is a really accomplished piece of work i don't think it's you can definitely feel like anderson is still developing his talents and hasn't quite figured out what to do with all the talent he has but the the elements are definitely there and it's really it's a really interesting watch Hmm. um so yeah it's worth your time if you if you want to kind of fill in your pta gaps before his his newest film comes out that's a a good watch and yeah i think i think boogie nights is is just really great too mm. and it's you know it's got mark
1: Wahlberg's best performance like career yeah your best for that's him. what i so heard you know,
0: it's got that going for it as well
1: <laughs> i've heard i've heard that it's got his his best performance he also made uh, he made a joke one time he's like I, I hope god didn't watch that movie um so i'm not really sure <laughs> Uh, <laughs> scenes in there, but that's what that's what he said. He's on record. Uh, I'm gonna go in a different direction with with my pick. There's a documentary series that just released on Amazon Prime called Lula Rich, and it follows Lularoe, the multi-level marketing billion-dollar clothing company for women. And this is a a four-episode series. It's not necessarily going to Blow you away in terms of its um, production. I also think the film probably should have interviewed more people who were hurt by this organization by this company. But it does tell the story of the rise of Lululemon and how this multi-level marketing scheme hurt many people, including those who made a lot of a lot of money. In this game. And I, I like watching business type documentaries like this because it just really kind of makes me think. It it I think it's a window, at least multi-level marketing, into many of our hopes and our dreams and our desires. And this film says something about patriarchy. It says something about motherhood. It says something about women in 21st century America. But it also says something about our desire to get rich and to get rich quick. And I think there's some fascinating uh, pieces of dialogue here, interviews here that that do at least allude to that. And so it got me thinking about that. And I think some of our listeners would be interested in this four-part documentary. So yeah, it's currently playing on, streaming on Amazon Prime. It is directed by Jenner First and Julia. Willoughby Nason. So yeah, that's my pick for the week.
0: Uh, yeah. You know, we, we talked a little bit about that uh, offline after recording last week's episode and it sounded really interesting. So I might, I might have to check that out. Sounds, sounds pretty neat.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, it's an interesting, any, an easy watch, an easy watch.
0: So speaking of, of last week's episode, there's one thing finally I want to do Wade, before we uh, close things out on this episode so, listeners, as we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, Wade is hanging up his podcast co-host Spurs for the foreseeable future, and we are going to be sad to see him you know, right off into the sunset. And so I'd like to extend an invitation as we get close to the uh, farewell episode for Wade, the, the goodbye bonanza or whatever you want to <laughs> call it. Um, if any of you uh, have fond memories of his time on the show or, you know, a, a particularly fun seeing and believing moment, or just maybe some, some words to share about, uh, you know, Wade's, Wade's uh, you know, his, his critical vision, or, or just something he said that you've really appreciated, pointed you towards, whatever it might be, let us know. Uh, we are collecting uh, sound clips uh, from listeners who want to maybe record a, a few seconds of audio for, for Wade to kind of see him off, or if you just want to send us a tweet or an email... We're kind of like collecting those together as a little farewell gift for Wade. So I'm issuing this call now. We'll also be kind of reminding you maybe on Twitter over the the next few days. But definitely, if you have anything like that to share and feel so led, uh, send it my way or the, the podcast way. It's pretty much one and the same at this point as I kind of take over the machinery of seeing and believing. So I want to throw that out there and get something put together for Wade as he Waves goodbye and you know has the the his his moment from the searchers where he steps out the doorway, yeah, framed in the doorway, and then the door closes behind. him.
1: No, that's really nice, Kevin. I really do appreciate that. Yeah, thanks to our listeners and uh, yeah, I'll I'll have more to say next week. But uh, man, been a great six and a half years, listeners. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by ChristinPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen i'm wade beard and my co-host is kevin McLennathan. and until next time this is seeing and believing we'll see you later you have been listening to seeing and believing
0: an official production of the christ and pop culture podcast network please rate and review the show on itunes and check out our other shows at christ and network theme music by alexander osborne and lindsey Miz.
1: Used under Creative Commons License 3.0. This episode was brought to you in part by the
0: audio adventure series, Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible.
1: Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com ct.